So, at our Seder, we said, our sages said we should have, and this, whenever we speak of rabbinic law, this is important to know, we don't mean that the rabbis a couple years ago got together and said, you know what, let's make this rule, or let's make that rule. When we say rabbinic law, um, such as not eating chicken with milk is a classic rabbinic law, festival of Purim, Hanukkah, um, and dozens of other rabbinic laws that we have. Most rabbinic law as a rule was made within the first few hundred years of Judaism. So Judaism's third, over 3,300 years old. Moses was over 3,300 years ago. Most rules were made in the first couple hundred years. So most of these rules were doing for 3,000 years straight. So they're not like, you know, they were made up recently. So, but we do have this rule, rabbinic rule that was made to, as a sign of freedom to drink four cups of wine. Why four cups of wine? So the Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud tells us that the four cups of wine represent the four times or the four terms God uses when he's telling Moses about the Exodus. And he tells Moses, I will take you out from under the burdens of Egypt, the Hotseti Etrem, and I will save you, the Hitzalti Etrem, from their service. I will redeem you from um, under their burden, and I will take you for me as a people. So those four terms, I will save you. Uh, sorry, I will take you out. I will save you. I will redeem you. And I will take you for me as a people. Those four terms um, are four terms of salvation or of um, uh, are four terms of um, redemption. And because of that, they said have four cups of wine representing our freedom. It also says four times in the um, in our scriptures, Kos Yeshuot Esa, the um, cup of salvation. I shall lift up. So a cup of wine, therefore, based on that verse in our scriptures, is representative of our, our salvation, our freedom. Um, it's a cup of blessing, we call it. Bracha, a cup of blessing. And therefore, to represent our freedom, we have four cups of wine. Now, there were those in the Talmud that said, well, in the Torah, if you read in the Torah, it actually says a fifth expression, it then says, I will bring you to the land I have promised to your forefathers. That is a fifth line of redemption. It's not really salvation. It's really kind of the next step. They said, why don't you have a fifth cup of wine representing not just coming out of Egypt, but coming to the promised land. Have a fifth cup of wine. In reality, we don't have a fifth cup of wine. We only drink four cups of wine at the Seder, only four cups. And uh, because we are not in the promised land, we haven't yet achieved full salvation. We are still um, living under control of others, even those living in the land of Israel. Israel has limited independence um, and we don't have our, um, we don't, we have, haven't had our temple restored. We're not living in a time of full redemption, and so therefore we do not have this fifth cup of wine. However, a custom developed 
that although we don't actually drink the fifth cup of wine, we do pour a fifth cup of wine, not for everyone at the table, but we pour one fifth cup of wine on the table and we let it sit on the table. When we pour our fourth cup, when everyone pours their fourth cup of wine, right toward the end of the Seder, we pour another cup, leave it on the table that we do not drink. With time, this cup of wine became known as Elijah's cup, or the cup of Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. Who is Elijah the prophet, and why does he get our, his own cup of wine at our Seder? So let's start with who is Elijah the prophet, and then we will understand why he gets his own cup of wine at our Seder. Yes, Stephen? Did we ever have a I don't know. It's, I think it's newer. So you don't have this cup sitting there. We always had the cup at the beginning, always sitting there. You could have it sitting there during the Seder, but we only fill it when we fill our fourth cup of wine at the very end. Yes. No, the custom of adding a fifth cup for Elijah um, is maybe a thousand years old. It's not that old. It, it, may be, it may have been earlier, but we don't have a record of it going back that far. So we do have this custom of adding a fifth cup for Elijah. Who is Elijah? So Elijah Eliyahu Hanavi actually was a real person who lived in Israel during the days of the first temple. He lived in Israel during the period of the first temple. And in the book of Kings, it tells us in great detail the story of Elijah the prophet or Eliyahu Hanavi. He's a very important figure during this period of the first temple. To put it chronologically, we're talking about 2,700 years ago or about 7 to 800 BC according to our Jewish counting tradition. So this is going back far, but he did exist. And Elijah the prophet lived in a time that Israel was split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom, which was mostly idolaters. And there was a southern kingdom led by the house of, Jude, house of David, um, which was most, mostly God-fearing, righteous, Torah-observant. Elijah lives in the northern kingdom. And he lives in the days of a king called Ahav. Ahav was a wicked king who committed many transgressions, including bringing idolatry to the land of Israel. And he worshipped um, he worshipped um, Sidonite idols um, called the Baal and the Asherah. And uh, he had a Sidonite wife whose name was Ezebel, Jezebel. And he had brought idol worship to the land. And at one point, Ahav challenges Elijah and he says, who was a Jewish leader, a well-known prophet? And he asks Elijah, how come Moses says in the Torah that if you forsake God and worship idols, God will not bring rain to the land? And it rains. How come? So Elijah says, I take up your challenge. It will not rain until I say so. And indeed, there is a three-year famine in the land of Israel. Elijah goes into hiding. Ahav is looking for him all over and um, he goes into hiding um, in a cave. Then later he moves to a town. He stays, um, stays in someone's attic. 
After three years, one day he bumps into Achav's attendant, whose name is Alvadia. He tells Alvadia, who himself is actually a righteous man and a prophet, um, he tells Alvadia, um, go tell Achav that I am coming to see him. Avadja says, I'm not telling Achav you're coming to see him. He's been searching for you for three years. You're going to disappear, and then he's going to have my head. Elijah says, I swear to you, I, will, I am coming to see him. And Avadja goes back to Achav, and Elijah comes to him, and Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a test to see who is true, God or your um, idols. Hashem or your idols. And what we're going to do is we're going to go up to Mount Carmel, which is a mountain that overlooks the Haifa Bay. And uh, over there, we're going to each build an altar. I'm going to build an altar for God, um, which only Elijah could do. He was a prophet and he was told by God to do it. Normally, it would be against Jewish law to offer a sacrifice outside the temple. And uh, you will build an altar for your idols and we'll put wood on it and we'll slaughter an animal on it. And we won't light the fire You'll call out to your gods, I'll call out to Hashem, and we'll see if a fire, if, it, uh, if the altar bursts into flame, then we'll know who the true God is. And indeed, they do that, um, and the um, Book of Kings describes this in great detail. All of Israel goes up to Mount Carmel, um, the 400 Baal, um, 400 Baal prophets and priests stand, build their own altar, and they put um, wood on it, and they put a animal on it, slaughter an animal and put it on, cut it up, put it on, and then they cry out to their gods and they, um, they bang themselves and beat themselves and nothing happens. And Elijah starts tormenting them, maybe you're, this is the way it tells in the book of Kings, maybe your idol went to sleep, maybe it went to the bathroom, maybe you need, a, maybe you need to scream a little louder. Anyway, it doesn't, they don't get anywhere. Afternoon comes, Elijah says, now it's my turn. He built an altar, puts wood on the altar, he puts, um, and he puts, slaughters an animal, puts it on, and then he built, digs a big moat around his altar, and he tells the people to fill, the, pour water on the altar, and they pour water on the altar, pour lots and lots of water until the whole moat around the altar is filled. And then Elijah turns to God and says, God, please answer me and show the people that you are the true God. And at that moment, a fire uh, suddenly, burst, or the fire suddenly appears, the, the altar bursts into flames, the fire burns the animal, the wood, the stones, the dirt underneath the altar, and all of the water. And you're just left with a gaping hole. And the people are amazed, and everyone declares Hashem the true God. And they all go, um, Elijah says, everyone hurry home, it's about to start pouring. And indeed, it starts to rain. Um, Isabel, Jezebel, Achav's wife is not impressed by this whole feat, even though everybody else has gotten rid of their idols and they kill all the um, they kill all the idolatrous priests and destroy the temples. Jezebel's furious about this whole thing, and she tries sends people to have Elijah killed. Elijah flees. He flees south, um, goes south of Israel, and he ends up at Mount Sinai. And over there, God appears to him. <coughs> he has this revelation. God appears to him. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, God, your people have forsaken your covenant. And I am the only one left. 
And God says, Elijah, your time is up. Um, gives him a couple instructions of what he should do. And then says, you are, your, you will, your time is over. And so Elijah then... Um, and so Elijah then, uh, Elijah then follows the different instructions God had given him. And then later he goes with his student disciple, whose name is Elisha. And they go east of the Jordan River. And as they are walking, this fiery chariot comes, uh, appears right next to them. And Elijah goes into this fire, fiery chariot. And this fiery chariot ascends up to the sky and disappears. And Elijah is gone. Elisha tears his clothing, mourns for his teacher, and Elijah is never seen of again. What happened to him? So, our tradition tells us that unlike normal people who die, Elijah somehow transferred from being a physical person to becoming a spiritual being and continues to serve God and to serve his people um, as a soul, as an angel, um, even today. And the next time we hear of Elijah is by a much later prophet, the prophet Malachi, who lived at the very beginning of the Second Temple, about 2,300 uh, years ago. And Malachi tells us that before the future redemption comes, before the final redemption comes, I will send you Elijah the prophet to herald the coming redemption. In other words, he will come back. He's disappeared, but he will come back before the future redemption comes to let us know that it is about to come. And he will then, he then finishes off. He will then return the hearts of fathers with their children, parents with their children, and children with their parents. And everybody will return back to God at that time when Elijah comes. So Elijah is the one that will herald the redemption. And for that reason, we have prayed to God for Elijah to reappear. Because when he reappears, it's going to be a sign that Moshiach is here. Moshiach is coming. And that is one reason why we invite Elijah to our seders. And the, the cup that we have at the Seder is called Elijah's cup because although we were redeemed from Egypt and we were given freedom, that freedom <coughs> was not total freedom, didn't last forever, and we've suffered over the years, and so we pray for the coming of Moshiach, and that cup represents the final redemption and the Elijah who is going to come in, come and herald the coming of Moshiach. Excellent question. Why is the chair on the beam of the Elijah chair? So that is one reason given why that cup is called the cup of Elijah and why we invite Elijah to our Seder. We want him to come and herald the coming of Moshiach. And indeed, I should point out that we have a custom that after we pour Elijah's cup, we open the door. And there are a number of reasons why we open the door. It's called a night of protection. So we open the door saying, God protects us. We don't need locks um, on that night. God is taking care of us. It's called a night of guarding. God guards us on that night um, and protects us. And, um, and, but we also we're opening the door. No, we open the door. We open the door and um, we open the door. You can open it. You're standing there at the door. 
You're standing there. You close it afterwards. So yeah, we open the door, but also we're opening the door for um, Elijah the prophet, hoping that he will come in to herald the coming of Moshiach. There is another reason given why Elijah the prophet comes to our Seder. That's one reason is to herald the coming of Moshiach, the ultimate redemption, which of course uh, we know that while we celebrate freedom on Passover, we are not fully, fully free. We haven't really reached that stage of freedom. So, but there is another reason why, we, why Elijah comes. And this has to do with the chair. We have a tradition that Elijah comes to every single bris milah, every single circumcision, <coughs> covenant of circumcision. Why? The book of Malachi tells us that Elijah is called Malach Habrit, the angel of the covenant. Angel of the covenant, the angel who is responsible to ensure that we fulfill and we keep God's covenant. Now we keep God's covenant in a number of ways. Firstly, we have the Brit Milah, the covenant of circumcision, which every Jewish male is, um, has a sign of God's covenant um, with their circumcision. Um, so that's one way we f- keep the covenant. Of course, every mitzvah that we do is keeping God's... Yeah, I've got to get you a list. Wait, five minutes? The, um, everything we do is keeping God's covenant. Every mitzvah we do is keeping God's covenant. The Seder, of course, is an important time that to, of keeping God's covenant because the Seder is the time where we pass on the tradition of the Mesorian Hebrew from generation to generation. We pass on the tradition each generation to the next generation. The Seder is the central time to pass on that tradition to the next generation. So the... Elijah's job as an angel or as a spiritual being that he now is, is to ensure that we keep our covenant. Why is that his job? So in Elijah's final, in his final revelation, in his final prophecy, when God appears to him, God God tells Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's response is, Amcha Yisrael, your nation Israel, have broken your covenant. And only I, am, I have remained. And God's response to Elijah is, How dare you say that? How dare you accuse my people of having broken their covenant? And this is something mm-hmm. that we find many times in Scripture. When Moses says, the people will not believe me. God says, Moses, how dare you say that? And Moses' skin turns white. White with a a disease called Tzaras, mentioned in the Torah, as punishment for having said, the people will not believe me. The prophet Isaiah tells God, I sit among a, pe- among a people with impure lips. God says to Isaiah, how dare you say that about my people and you will be punished for that. And indeed Isaiah was punished for that. So when Elijah tells God, your people have forsaken the covenant, God says, how dare you say that, Elijah? My people 
How dare you speak badly about my people? Right? It teaches us a lot about how we talk about God's children. So, how dare you speak badly about my people? God says, Elijah, that's it. Your time is up. You're done. You can't be my messenger to my people anymore on, this, on earth as long as you can't live on earth if you're going to talk about my people in that way, your time is up. And he gives them these, these messages um, to... Um, he gives them these, these things he has to do, and he says, then you're done. And then not only that, says God, from, for the rest of time, your role will be to come back and let me know every time my people keep my covenant. So every bris, you're going to go to every single bris and you're going to make sure that they are keeping my covenant. Not only that, you're going to go to every single Seder to see to it that they are still keeping my covenant and then at the end of times you will come back to herald the final redemption. So because of that, we have a special chair that we call Elijah's chair, which is the chair on which the um, sandik or the one holding the baby sits during the bris. And it's called Elijah's chair. Um, and because of that also we have a tradition that Elijah comes to every single Seder um, to um, see to it that, and testify that we are keeping God's covenant. So Elijah visits every single Seder. And therefore we have that cup for those two reasons. Both um, because to testify that we are fulfilling God's covenant 3,300 years after the Exodus, we are still celebrating. We're still eating matzah, still drinking our wine, still telling the story 3,300 years later. Every single year, still making a Seder. We're still doing it. And that cup testifies to that. And we're not fully there yet. We're free, but not free enough. We want to reach true freedom, and therefore Elijah is going to be the one to herald the future redemption, Eliyahu Hanavi, and we have that cut for him, signifying we are ready. We want Elijah to come and tell us about the future redemption that is coming.